Welcome to the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, and I'm here to tell you about some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters that have made an impact on the Central California Valley community. Are you ready to hear a notorious Bakersfield story? Good. Let's get started. Welcome to the 13th episode of the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to give you a heads up about a special I began working on. It's a self-paced audio driving Halloween tour. You can load your friends and family into the car and drive to the locations of some of Bakersfield's most notorious crime scenes. At each location, I'll tell you the story behind each crime. In keeping with the Halloween spirit, I'll include some of Bakersfield's supposed haunted locations. All you'll need is a smartphone, Google Maps, and probably a Bluetooth connection, but it's not necessary. The tour will be available for purchase on October 1st and will run through the entire month of October to Halloween. It will be a spooky good time. Several months ago, when I began contemplating this notorious Bakersfield podcast, I made a vow to myself to always try to keep the focus on the victims of crimes. Part of that vow was to never title an episode using the perpetrator's name. When there's a murder, the focus of the crime often becomes the person who committed the killing. This past week, a parole board recommended parole for a convicted murderer. In 2001, Tori Lynn Knapp was brutally stabbed to death by her then 15-year-old son, Parker Chamberlain. This crime is the perfect example of the focus and attention being paid to the murderer rather than the victim. Almost every headline about this case and about this development has Parker Chamberlain's name in it. Not one mentions Tori, his mother, the victim. Not one headline has said Tori Knapp's killer is recommended for parole. Not one. I'm not immune to this mindset either. The name Parker Chamberlain is more familiar to me than Tori Knapp. To be honest, I'd forgotten her name, embarrassingly. For the past 20 years, every time this case has gotten media attention, it's been Parker, front and center. That's why this episode is titled Tori Lynn Knapp, because I believe it should always be about the victims. I could have used the killer's name to garner more Google hits, but I just won't do that. This was a gruesome murder that shocked everyone who knew both the victim and the killer. How could a teenager who appeared to have a close and loving relationship with his mother kill her and in such a brutal way? It's a question everyone has, the family, friends of the family, even the detectives who investigated the case. During the summer of 2001, Parker Chamberlain was a 15-year-old. He'd be starting his junior year of high school in the fall. He lived with his mother on Feather River Drive. It's a nice neighborhood in Rosedale near Coffee and Hageman Roads. His older sister had moved out of the home, but there were plans for her to move back. Parker's mother, Tori Lynn Knapp, was a divorced mother of two, Parker and his older sister. In the early 90s, when Parker was five or six, his parents separated. Most of the couple's marital problems stemmed from Parker's dad's addiction issues. In 1994, while the couple was separated, Parker's dad died from a cocaine overdose. 
With the life insurance money, his mother was able to buy a nice house for the family and put herself through school. Eventually, Tori earned her degree and teaching credential. By 2001, she was a popular established teacher at Highland Elementary School. By all accounts, Parker was a gifted student at Centennial High School. He played football and was involved in other school activities. His teachers described him as motivated, mature, responsible, organized, extremely intelligent, fun and upbeat, popular and well-liked. He was an excellent student in the gifted and talented education program. Academically, he was in the top 1% of his class. Parker's friends and their parents described him as ambitious and goal-oriented, very intelligent, popular, and respectful. Everyone described his relationship with his mom, Tori, as good. Family and friends said it appeared he and his mom had a close and loving relationship. Their relationship encountered a bump in 2001 when Tori discovered Parker took her ATM card and had stolen about $1,200 from her bank account. Tori did what most parents would do. She put him on restriction and made him work to pay back the money. Despite that, they maintained a good relationship. He never complained about her or expressed any anger whatsoever towards her. At the end of his sophomore year, with the urging of a friend, Parker made the decision to try steroids. He began using them with the belief that they'd help him bulk up and develop muscles quicker for the upcoming football season. But he didn't like how they made him feel, so he quit the steroids. Sometime in late June 2001, Tori informed her son that she was having financial problems. They needed to make some changes, and she probably wasn't going to be able to buy him a car he was hoping for for his 16th birthday. This news was distressing to Parker. Maintaining an appearance of being well-to-do was important to the teenager. In June 2001, Parker had been spending a lot of time with a friend named Matt. He'd spend the night several times at Matt's house. Their homes were about two miles from each other, and Matt would usually give Parker a ride to or from their homes. On July 2nd, 2001, at about 4.30 p.m., Matt picked up Parker at his house on Feather River. Tori had gone to the movies with a friend. When she got home, a note was taped to the garage door that led into the house. The note read, Mom, Matt and I are going to hang out at his house and order pizza or something. I'll call you if we do anything else or if I'm going to stay the night. I love you. Call me when you go to bed if I haven't talked to you. Love, Parker. At around 5.30 p.m., Tori called her son at Matt's house. When they hung up, Parker gave no indication anything was wrong. He wasn't angry or upset. The boys passed the time in the spa, talking. Matt's parents went to bed around 11 p.m. Matt asked Parker if he wanted to ride home or if he was going to spend the night. Parker told him he was going to spend the night. Matt went to bed about 12.30 or 12.45 a.m., July 3rd. Parker got on the couch to sleep around the same time. A little before 3 a.m., July 3rd, Parker got up. To make it look like he was still sleeping on the couch, Parker arranged the pillows underneath the blanket and left Matt's house. 
When he got to his own house, Parker entered the backyard through a side gate. He removed his sandals, opened the unlocked back door, went to the kitchen, and removed a knife from the knife holder. Then he walked into his mother's bedroom. You may have noticed I've been messing around with the Notorious Bakersfield logo a bit. We're still working on it, making some final adjustments, but helping me in that process is Mike Neiman. For 25 plus years, Mike Neiman has worked hard in the world of graphic design for print media. He has grown his small studio by word of mouth to emerge as a premier graphic design studio in Bakersfield and beyond. With designs for Notorious Bakersfield, Taft City logo rebranding, social media influencers, businesses, and charities both locally and far away. Mike Neiman Graphic Design has built a reputation for caring for his customers and making sure they have the designs and print materials to stand out. Find him on Facebook at MN Graphic Design for all contact information and to see some of his graphic design solutions. When Parker Chamberlain entered his mother's bedroom, she was sound asleep. He raised the knife and began stabbing. The first few jabs he made were through the sheet and into her body. Then she managed to get out of bed and onto her feet. Parker continued stabbing until his mother's lifeless nude body dropped to the floor. 35 stab wounds total. The assault was so powerful, at some point during the attack, the tip of the knife broke off into Tori's ribs. He dropped the knife on the bedroom floor. Parker also cut his own hand during the attack. He went in the adjacent bathroom to wash the blood off his wounded hand and wrapped it in a towel. There was blood on the bed, the floor, the ceiling, the nightstand. A seasoned Bakersfield police detective described it as one of the most gruesome crime scenes he'd ever encountered. Parker began walking back to Matt's house. He left the same way he came in, through the side gate. As he passed the trash can, he discarded the bloody towel. Remember this point. He was going to go back to his friend's house, lay down on the couch, and pretend he'd never left. Then it dawned on him. How was he going to explain the knife wound to his hand? He went back home and called 911. He told the operator that he interrupted an intruder attacking his mom. When officers arrived, he gave them a detailed description of the imaginary killer, said he fought the attacker off and wrestled the knife from the man. That's how he was wounded. Then he chased him down the street. The man ran funny, like he had a limp. It didn't take long for officers to discover the bloody towel in the trash can. When asked about this, Parker told them he threw the towel in the trash can as he passed by it when he was chasing the man down the street. What? That didn't make any sense. You interrupt this guy stabbing your mom, then you get the knife from him, your hand gets cut in the fight, you go to the bathroom to get a towel to stop the bleeding, and the man sticks around waiting for you to chase him down the street? When confronted with this inconsistency, Parker confessed there was no man. He was the one 
who stabbed his own mother to death. Detectives discovered steroids in Parker's room and asked him about them. He admitted using them, but had stopped a couple of months prior. Blood analysis showed that Parker didn't have any steroids in his system the morning of the murder. Matter of fact, there was no alcohol or any trace of illegal drugs in the teenager's system the morning he murdered his mother. In 2002, Parker Chamberlain was tried as an adult and convicted of first-degree premeditated murder with personal use of a deadly weapon. He was sentenced to 25 years to life plus one year. In 2018, the California Department of Corrections recommended a recall of Chamberlain's sentence. And since he'd been a model prisoner for all these years, they recommended he be resentenced. After an extensive briefing and hearing, the Superior Court denied the motion to recall Parker Chamberlain's sentence. Then, just last week, two state commissioners for the Board of Parole Hearings recommended Parker Chamberlain for parole. If California's governor doesn't reverse the board's recommendation within 150 days, Tory Lynn Knapp's convicted murderer will be released from prison. Resources used to research this case were the Bakersfield Californian, CaseLaw.com, People vs. Chamberlain, KGT News, and the Associated Press. Thank you for listening to this episode. Remember to like Notorious Bakersfield on your favorite podcast app, or follow it, I should say. Until next Tuesday, have a great week. This is Robert Peterson. Goodbye.